you know, I get up on stage and I start giving the presentation like everyone does on demo day. And then I say, we built this satellite in only three months. And Ryan picks up the satellite out of the case and lifts it over his head. And no one in the audience had any idea that we had brought real hardware with us. And I think most of these people had never even seen a satellite before. And they let out an audible, ooh, which was just... (laughs) Welcome to Speed, a show about leaders who move fast. I'm your host, Peregrine Badger, on the team at 50 Years, a venture capital firm backing founders using technology to solve the world's biggest problems. We back founders working on climate change, health, free speech, affordable housing, and other global issues. These problems demand urgency. Shipping faster means saving lives, preventing extinctions, and creating a future worth living. We interview leaders who move fast and ask them what they did and how they did it with the goal of bringing their strategies and tactics to bear on the world's biggest problems. This is Speed. Today's show is with John Gedmark, co-founder and CEO of Astronus. Astronus is on a mission to connect the 4 billion people who don't have reliable internet today. They're doing this with geostationary satellites, satellites that stay in orbit over a particular region. We'll hear from John about his story from traditional aerospace to the XPRIZE Foundation and on the founding of Astronus. Plus, we'll hear how he and a tiny team shipped satellites far faster than traditional aerospace companies and his approach to balancing speed with high reliability. John, welcome to Speed. Ah, oh, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to this episode. Astranus is bringing internet to billions of people. It's an incredible, incredible story. We'd love to start off with your background, John. How'd you get into space? Yeah, very happy to be here. So I have always been a space enthusiast, going back to when I was a little kid. Very early on, my dad introduced me to science fiction And then ever since, still to this day, I am one of the most voracious readers of sci-fi that I think you will ever find. So back when I was a little kid, it was was the the classics, Arthur C. Clarke, Rama, Rama 2, 2001 A Space Odyssey, 2010, list goes on. And then also Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein. So pretty early on, I knew that I wanted to do some cool things in space. I knew back when I was graduating from school that I did not want to go work at one of the big traditional defense contractors. At the time, that was where most graduates with aerospace engineering degrees were going and working. And I did a couple internships that made very clear to me that that was not for me. And remember, this was so this was actually back in the early 2000s. So even before SpaceX was founded, I was getting my aerospace engineering degrees. And I did a couple internships at some of the big aerospace companies. Just to tell one story, I was working at a company in Los Angeles, very large traditional aerospace defense contractor. And they had a big contract for a program called the Airborne Laser Program. Okay, now the Airborne Laser Program is the craziest idea you've ever heard. It is, they took a giant plane, imagine a plane the size of a 747, but they fill that entire plane with one giant laser, a chemical laser. And the purpose of this laser was to shoot down missiles, nuclear missiles actually, so this is part of the missile defense set of programs. And they had to design this entire plane with this laser, with the optical turret on the nose, They had to figure out the operational aspects of it so it could fly around and try to shoot down these missiles. And it was a giant, decade-long, multi-billion dollar program. And they actually ended up building one, which is the craziest part. And I think they even did some tests. And I was working in a big office building, big cube farm, and most of the people on that floor were working on this program. Wow. And one of the senior engineers working on the program said to me, John, you are working way too hard. Like we are in Los Angeles. This is an internship. You should be out enjoying the beach, not in here working like 12 hour days. And I just got to tell you, this program and all these other programs, they're probably going to be canceled anyway. The way these things work is they going way behind schedule, way over budget, billions of dollars over budget. And finally, Congress will have enough and they'll just cancel it probably before we even fly anything. So you should... Seriously, just enjoy the summer and don't work too hard. Man, and then I was, it sounds like a downer. <laughs> yeah, there's really not much 
more he could have said that would have been more demotivational or dejecting. So I knew that that was not for me, to say the least. And so I went looking for something very different from that when I finally graduated. And I ended up finding this fantastic organization called the XPRIZE Foundation. So the XPRIZE Foundation is this nonprofit and they offer prizes for technology breakthroughs. And, you know, over the years, they've put up many of these prizes. Back in the day, they were most well known for this $10 million prize for the first company to launch people into space as a private venture. And that prize was actually won by basically the the team and the vehicles that ended up becoming Virgin Galactic. So Hmm. this was really the the origin story of Virgin Galactic. And so XPRIZE was really in the middle of, of, of everything interesting that was happening at the time. So I'd heard about XPRIZE when I was a student. So I was a grad student at Stanford, getting ready to graduate. I knew that I did not want to go work at one of the big defense contractors. So I was looking at some of these new companies. I was thinking of starting my own company. And I had this binder at the time full of business cards of everybody I'd ever met in the industry that I thought you know could, could be interesting or somebody I might want to stay in touch with. And there was... Peter's card. I had met him at a talk that he gave. I'd gone introduce myself and he'd give me his card. And so on sort of a whim, I was sitting in my dorm room and I just picked up my phone and called his cell phone. It was a total cold call. And he answered, much to my amazement. And I very quickly, you know, sort of uh, stammered out that I was a grad student at Stanford trying to figure out what to do next. I figured he had the best view on all these new companies or what kinds of new companies one could start. And so I asked him, like, what would you recommend someone do in my shoes? And, you know, he asked me a couple more questions about myself. And then he proceeded to very quickly convince me that I should go work for him as an intern, effective immediately. And that, (laughs) and I pretty much accepted on the spot. So I ended that phone call with what I thought was a new job, down in beautiful Santa Monica, California. And I was just trying to figure out how, to, how I could like as quickly as possible start packing up my stuff and, and getting down there. And when I drove down with sort of a first carload of stuff, I went to meet some people at the XPRIZE office and I quickly realized that, first of all, the interview was not over. So I did have to actually go through a little bit more of an interview process, which I did. And secondly, that the internship was unpaid. We had not discussed compensation. (laughs) Important life lesson learned there. And so I quickly had to figure out how to make the finances work for me to to work in Santa Monica. But obviously, I I decided to do it and and never looked back. And I I certainly would make the decision again in a heartbeat. When you think about XPRIZE, I think there's one angle on it, which is pulling the future into the present. Like you can sort of think of it as a catalyst for more capital, right? Like, you know, there's a million dollars of XPRIZE money, and then there's $10 million of private investment that sort of goes towards some goal. Do you have thoughts on how much that particular prize pulled a person in space into the present? Maybe it happened three years sooner because of that? Oh, for sure. I mean, before the XPRIZE, it was not even conceivable that a private company would be able to put together a team, raise the capital, and build a vehicle that could put people into space. Hmm. That was just seen as crazy talk, right? And what they were able to do was bring it into the mainstream because when that prize was won, it was won on national television with celebrities there. Richard Branson was there. Everybody saw this thing happen in real time and was like, oh, wow, this is really possible. You know, I mean, it's hard to even imagine a, a, a universe where that didn't happen and people started to really take this seriously. Wow. So you started at XPRIZE. Yeah. So I was working at XPRIZE and working on all kinds of, of very cool projects for Dr. Peter Dimandis, who's an incredibly prolific founder and entrepreneur. One of the ideas that he had that he was working on was a new organization, an industry group just for the new commercial space companies. And this didn't had, had, had just not existed because, of course, there are industry groups for space, for aerospace and defense, but they were totally dominated at the time by Boeing and Lockheed Martin, who really were the giant, you know, the, the giants in the industry and, and controlled basically everything that those groups did. So he set out to start a new group. And I was there. I was had the great fortune of getting to work on that with him and help you know, organize a couple of the early meetings. And we started it with a CEO level board of directors. 
So Elon Musk was there on the early board, the CEO of Virgin Galactic at the time, the CEO of Blue Origin. There were these early pioneers in the industry all there. And as this organization started to get off the ground, that group asked me to go and run it as the executive director full-time. I moved to Washington, D.C. and helped get this thing set up. And then I ran it as executive director for four years. Interesting. It's interesting that Elon and Jeff and Richard Branson all sort of were working on space at the same time and that this XPRIZE kind of happened around that time. I guess, were there technology trends that were sort of leading in this direction? Or do you think there were other societal trends that led to space exploration in the private sector becoming more mainstream? Yeah, I mean, well, one societal trend was the dot-com boom. Hmm. And while there was then a dot-com bust, you still had a number of winners who came out of that with basically enormous fortunes who said, hey, I have always been passionate about space. Now is a unique moment in history where I actually may have the private funding on my own to go and start a, a space company, even if outside investors would not be willing to invest. And that was just the first time that that had ever happened, right? That was just the first time that we'd ever been in that situation. For context, two of these winners were Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. Elon initially invested $100 million to start SpaceX, and Jeff has invested $7.5 billion in Blue Origin. So in running the Commercial Space Flight Federation, I was very fortunate to have a front row seat to everything that was happening in the industry. We had a huge number of new companies that were started around that time. New rocket companies, new companies building small satellites. There were even people building new spaceports, which is a whole new thing that no one had ever gone and tried and done that before as a private venture. And all of those folks wanted to join the Commercial Space Flight Federation. So I had this opportunity to meet them, to get to know all of them. I would actually jump on an airplane as soon as I found out about a new company and go try and visit them in person and meet them and also see if they were real or not. See if they had real hardware that they were putting together or if they were just working on PowerPoint slides. And then ultimately we'd make a decision whether or not they would be allowed to join the Federation. And we ended up more than doubling the organization in size every year for four years. So part of the genesis for Astronus was getting to see all of this new activity that was happening. And there really was this missing piece where no one was doing what we are doing today at Astronus, which is this new approach with small satellites in this very special orbit called geostationary orbit. Okay, you're running this organization. You realize that no one is using satellites in this way. Was there a reason you were attracted to these internet applications, like delivering internet to people around the world? Or... Do you just see that as this kind of open space and you're just looking for open space? Historically, there's a few things you can do from space that are just uniquely valuable, right? So you can take pictures of the earth from far away and from anywhere on the planet. So there's remote sensing. There is uh, telecommunications, which historically was, was actually largely driven by satellite TV, but had the potential to have a huge impact with, with broadband internet. There's human spaceflight and exploration and there's science missions. And then you start to get into, you know, some of the farther out stuff like, like asteroid mining. So, you know, of those, broadband connectivity was, uh, to me, always the most interesting and the one that I, I think had the most, you know, market potential and could have the biggest impact. So historically, most of the money in space had actually been made by these big satellites in geostationary orbit, in this, in this very special orbit where satellites orbit the Earth at this rate of one rotation per day. And since the surface of the Earth also rotates at one rotation per day, you can put a satellite there and it is effectively locked to a particular part of the world. And so you can basically park a satellite over a country or a continent and just provide continuous service there in a way that you can't do from any other orbit. So it's this incredibly valuable piece of space real estate that historically has been the biggest moneymaker in our industry. But it had always been done with these huge satellites that take five years to build, hundreds of millions of dollars. And it just seems sort of obvious that there should be a better way to do it now that we had the technology to build small satellites. And so you sort of had this idea, you saw this market opportunity, and then how did you find your co-founder? I didn't know if that was uh, truly the right idea. I certainly had a few ideas, actually, since there is a, a huge amount of potential in, in commercial space. But I did know that I, I wanted to move back to Silicon Valley and just get something off the ground and figure it out later. So I moved from Washington, D.C. back to Silicon Valley and I started thinking of some ideas. And Ryan actually 
gave me a call because he had gotten a new job in San Francisco at Planet Labs. So my co-founder, Ryan, was an old friend from back when we were both involved in the student organization, Students for the Exploration and Development of Space, or SEDS. And actually, I gave him a ride from the airport when he first landed to go and, and start work at this new company. And we basically immediately hit it off again and almost immediately started talking about ideas for a new space company. So we sort of kicked ideas around for quite a while. And then it was after probably a year of these kind of conversations that we realized we were really onto something and we should just pull the trigger and take the leap and start a company. What were your initial steps? I know you were in YC in winter 2016. Was that the first step of the company? Or Yeah, so we applied to, to Y Combinator as one of the first things before we had even incorporated the company. YC at the time was just starting to proactively look out for hard tech companies. Mm. And this was a relatively new thing for them. It was actually under Sam Altman coming in as the new president that he decided he wanted to do more in hard tech. And so, you know, we very quickly found ourselves in, in front of some YC partners and getting a pretty warm reception for, for the idea as we went through the, the YC interview. Man, go Sam. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a good time for hard tech. I mean, people don't remember it now, but Cruz had just had an exit hmm. after uh, only being around for quite a short time. And it was a big exit. And Sam Altman wrote a blog post called Hard Tech is Back. <laughs> right. Which, and if you think about it, I mean, it had actually been a really long time since Silicon Valley had been really focused on and thinking about hard tech, just software and mobile apps and everything you could do with iPhone and, and social networks had been dominating the conversation for so long that it really had been a long time. So it was very cool to be part of that wave. We felt it immediately. There were two other companies in our batch that were also first for YC. We were the first satellite company. There was also Relativity Space, mm. the rocket company, and boom, the supersonic company. Oh, so yeah. the, wow. <laughs> the three of us quickly connected and became this sort of aerospace triumvirate of founders doing cool stuff in that, in that YC batch. Often in accelerators, it can be tricky because there's this sort of artificial timeline. You know, you have a few months to build something and there's going to be a demo day. How did you navigate that? Yeah, so one of the first things that happens when you get into YC is, especially with a company like ours, you have these YC partners that you're assigned to and they sit you down and say, look, you have three months until demo day and you better show up with something impressive for these investors. So what can you accomplish in the next three months that will be impressive on demo day? And for us, we you know talked about this a little bit and we said, uh, we think we can build a first prototype satellite in three months. We could pull in a couple of our friends and, you know, with a very small team, we think we can actually pull something together pretty quickly. And they were like, yeah, that sounds great. You should definitely do that. So we immediately got to work and, you know, it was, it ended up being far more work than I think we could have ever imagined, but we were able to basically piece together this, this prototype satellite and get some early, you know, software working on it. And, and the goal here was, was actually pretty simple. It was just, we wanted to show as a company that we could put something into space with a small team and do it fast and that it would work, right? And so this was a, a very small step along the way to the, the, the ultimate vision that we had of the satellites that could provide internet for, for billions of people. But, you know, it, it totally made sense at the time with a very small team working basically out of a garage. And, and what was that early prototype? It sounds like some of the early components, maybe it'd be a good point to mention the sort of software-defined radio, this like critical component. Yeah, we, we very early on knew that we wanted to have uh, digital processing capability on our satellites and that that would be incredibly important. Historically, most of these satellites are actually analog repeaters. So there's no digital signal processing happening on board those satellites of any kind. And, you know, they take in an analog wave that's broadcast up to them and then they repeat it down as, a, as an analog wave, but they do that without ever doing any digital signal processing. Some quick background on analog and digital systems. Analog systems are like old school landline phones, where you plugged in cables to get a signal from one person to another. Satellites have historically used analog repeaters called bent pipe repeaters, because a radio signal would come in one side of this metaphorical pipe and flow out the other without being processed in a digital way. 
This meant a satellite could be configured for a particular data rate and frequency and couldn't be reconfigured in space. A digital system is more like a cell phone. A signal comes in, it gets processed or transformed by a computer before being rebroadcast out. What's the advantage of doing digital signal processing? Like when you guys looked at it, you said, we're going to have this digital system in here. What was the impetus for that? I mean, I mean, going from the world of analog to the world of digital just opens up a whole array of things that you can do, right? It's incredibly powerful. You can have higher performance, so you're pushing down you know, more megabits a second than you, you could with a, without the onboard digital processing. You can have frequency flexibility, so you can have satellites that go up and are very adaptable, so you can, you can move them around and serve different use cases and sort of uh, reconfigure them on the fly. There's basically this whole universe of things that gets opened up once you go digital, but it is hard. You are taking on a, a sort of order of magnitude more technical uh, challenge and complexity in doing that. So we knew we wanted to get an early start there was a particular chip that we wanted to fly in space and show that if we flew this chip in space and it worked, that that could be the foundation for future and more powerful software-defined radios that we would build. So that was a, the sort of early idea behind it was just like build the, the, the minimum possible satellite that could get this chip and a, and a basically a crude uh, early version of a software-defined radio up that we could, we could do some testing on. And so that's what we did. And we showed up on demo day. And we had this satellite in a Pelican case. And <laughs> I think there are YC partners that will still talk about this moment to this day. You know, I get up on stage and I start giving the presentation like everyone does on demo day with the slides behind me. And then I say, we built this satellite in only three months. And Ryan picks up the satellite out of the case and lifts it over his head. And no one in the audience had any idea that we had brought real hardware with us. And I think most of these people had never even seen a satellite before. And they let out an audible, ooh, which was just, <laughs> and you can see the video. I just started laughing because it was so unexpected. You know, it was something out of a, out of like a TV show, but it actually happened spontaneously that the audience, you know, literally oohed when we, when he lifted up the satellite and then we we're like, okay, we're pretty, we're in pretty good shape here. <laughs> and so three months, it was you and you said a, a couple of friends or it was like a, a couple Me and people. Ryan and a couple of friends. Yeah. Were they, were they full-time at this point or was it really just you two full-time and a couple of people? They were full-time, yeah. So sort of full, four full-time people hacking on this. And what did the prototype prove? Was it mostly the software-defined radio? It was just like a sort of chip and system for that? Well, I mean, it, you know, we had cobbled together some parts and it was barely functioning. But what it proved to investors, I think, is just that we could move with lightning speed to build something and do that in an industry where historically that was not the norm, right? Mm. Where things were done on multi-year, if not decade-long timescales. And so to see a small team do that on timescales of months, you know, that was just a very powerful thing. Mm. And so why was that possible? I think it was possible for a, a, a variety of reasons. I mean, we had the background, Ryan and I both worked on satellite systems of, of sort of all sizes, and also, there are now all of these software tools and open source tools that you can use to very rapidly design new electronics, have them build that hardware very quickly, and get prototypes in your hands on a lab bench working, you know, within days from when you might design something. And, and I, I think that's, you know, I think that's true for all of hard tech right now, that there's just, this is the culmination of a huge amount of progress that maybe for a long time was sort of, you know, simmering below uh, the radar and then burst forth once all the right ingredients were in place. Mm. So part of it was this experience building satellites. Part of it was this design software to enable you to have faster feedback loops. And I'm guessing part of it was just having a smaller team. Oh, yeah. Having a small team that's, that's super cohesive, works together well, and can sit down and just, and just crank stuff out for sure. Mm. You worked in traditional aerospace for a bit. Do you have any other comparisons around process where you worked in a more agile or more iterative way than a traditional company would have approached this problem? Yeah, so the biggest difference, right, between the traditional defense contractors and I think all of the new space companies is their willingness to go and take risk and spend real money without someone else already paying for everything that you're doing. The traditional defense contractors have very small R&D budgets, meaning their own money that they take out of their profit, you know, that, that, that comes out of their bottom line hmm. that they go spend on new technology. What they are used to and what they have traditionally done 
is they go find a U.S. government customer, someone in the Pentagon or somewhere or at NASA who says, oh, yeah, if you go develop this new technology, we'll pay you to do that. We will cover all of your costs and it will be risk free. You, there's no way you will lose money. We will pay for all of it. And they are so used to that, that the amount of money that they actually spend on risky things is tiny compared to the size of these companies. I mean, it's, it's just mind-blowingly tiny. And I mean, like compare that with Tesla, for example, and the you know billions of dollars that they are spending on R&D on an ongoing basis at all times. There's just no comparison. So just being willing to take the risk and say, we believe that this is a useful thing. We believe that this technology is important. And so we are going to raise private capital and we're going to spend that money to go build this thing and even put something in space with no customer and just show that it works. That's just not something that the traditional companies do. Mm. So uh, the, the government wouldn't have paid a traditional contractor to you know, research a software-defined radio and put that in space because the government would say, ah, you know, that's not directly contributing to a product that you're going to sell us. Yeah, I mean, or, or they might, but that would take them years to find that customer, agree on the requirements. There'd be some requests for proposals. There'd be companies sending in those proposals. Then there's some competitive bid process. The whole process, it just, it's it'd just be incredibly slow. I mean, there's some really cool technologies that come out of those programs, to be sure. But what you don't have is, is private industry charging ahead and spending huge amounts of money on R&D uh, on their own and on the merits of that technology as they see it. How long did it take from initially starting YC and getting the company formed to actually put that satellite in space? The early prototype satellite, you know, we ended up learning a lot from putting that together and then building you know, another rev that we launched into space. And we shipped out that uh, satellite for launch later in 2017. So it ended up taking us, you know, another year or so to actually have a fully uh, space capable satellite that we knew would work. And we did that with a very small team though of, of, I mean, it was basically about eight people that built and launched that early satellite. So we are very proud uh, that that satellite was a 100% mission success. You know, and that is that is not a common thing for a team that small with that kind of shoestring budget to go and put a satellite in space that quickly and have it work 100% every subsystem across the board. That is not common. That is, uh, I would say, the exception uh, and not the norm. So we're very we're very proud of the success of that satellite. Mm. And it sounds like part of that success came from this experience, these software design tools, the fact that it was private capital. Did part of it come from the talent of the people you hired? Yeah, without question, that that was a uh, <laughs> bit of the uh, the secret sauce was just finding the most what I think is the most stellar group of individuals I've I've ever had the pleasure of working with on that kind of project. I mean, we were we hired incredibly slowly, right? I mean, we we started with just a couple friends, and then we added a person per few months type of rate, and we did that because we interviewed huge numbers of people. And we just, we knew that we had to have, you know, this, this uh, incredible hiring bar in order to, to have any hope of pulling it off. And that continues to this day. You know, we're, we're incredibly proud of the uh, team that we have built at Astronus and, and the caliber of those, of those individuals. Mm. So you got through YC, you had this prototype, you did another development rev on it, and then you shipped this thing to space. All that in about a year. If you imagine a traditional aerospace company with that size of team trying to do that, how long do you think it would take them? Well, they would never do that with that size of team. That's the, the, the short answer is that they, they would not launch a satellite of that size without anything short of, you know, many dozens of people, 50 people. Hmm. For the, the type of capability that we were able to put up in space, I think they would have, you know, assigned dozens of people to that program. They would have charged their government customer millions and millions of dollars and probably taken twice or, or three times the amount of time to do it. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And, and was it that prototype that uh, you had the dog part story? Oh, yeah. This, uh, so there's a great story here where part of, of trying to get this done quickly and you know, just super efficiently is before you put a satellite into space, you need to test the radios and the antennas. And so uh, once the satellite gets all assembled, 
you typically would take the satellite to a range where you can test the radios at you know some distance with the antennas deployed and know that your antenna patterns and everything is, is as expected. So before we did that, we wanted to do some early tests, but you know we, we didn't want to have to wait uh, to get into one of these test facilities where you know there was like a lead time and also there was uh, some extra costs associated with that. And just for context, like roughly what's that lead time? What's that cost? Yeah, I mean, it could be, it, so depending on how long you're in there to do your testing, this could be, you know, thousands of dollars or, or tens of thousands of dollars. So, mm. so we wanted to do some early tests and one of the engineers figured out that we could do a lot of the early testing that we wanted to do just with a, a large enough empty space, but that's kind of hard to come by in San Francisco. And, <laughs> and so he found this park near our office that was sufficiently flat and uh, it was just sort of a you know, normal, normal park. And they walked over there with the, the satellite, with some test equipment and with some stands uh, to, to, to hold them up. And again, you know, this is when we were really working out of actually a, basically a glorified apartment. Right. So we are still a garage uh, outfit here with, you know, about eight people. And I went with them and we and, and just sort of helped out and we got the satellite all set up for testing. And then. What we quickly realized was that this was actually a dog park and a couple of people showed up and, you know, set foot in that park and immediately took their dogs uh, off, off the leash. And of course, those dogs just raced directly at the satellite. I mean, like a total beeline towards this satellite that we had, you know, sort of perched on this, on this stand. And we were like, running, diving in front of the satellite, trying to fend off these dogs as they're just sort of running around. And then, you know, I mean, the, the, the owners of the dogs quickly realized what was going on and called them back over. But we were able to, to, to fend them off. No, no harm, no foul. And we apologized for sort of taking up all this space in their, in their normal dog park. And they were very understanding. And, and we appreciated that, uh, that they, you know, let us finish our test. And then we got on our way. But that was like a harrowing moment where we thought for a moment there that a dog was, you know, going to run at it. We weren't going to be able to stop it in time, jump and, and just, you know, just take a big bite out of the satellite while it was standing there. And how much did that prototype cost? It was a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of hardware. But I mean, you know, the real value is in all the engineering time that's gone into assembling mm-hmm. it and doing that with, I mean, it had been assembled in a clean environment and, you know, under very controlled conditions to make sure that, you know, no extra debris or anything had gotten in there. And we, you know, we'd always handle it with gloves and everything. So if, if, a, <laughs> if a dog had jumped up and like taken a big slobbery bite on it, that would have been not good. You mentioned it being assembled in a clean environment, but you're sort of a garage outfit. Did you have a homemade clean room in this garage or were you assembling it somewhere else? We did. We built a quasi clean room out of PVC pipe and shower curtains, clear plastic shower curtains. One of our engineers, now a engineering director, Sam White, put that together over a weekend. And, you know, we did some tests with some basic filtration. The particle count was below what we needed. And so we ran with it. So fast forwarding a little bit, you guys are a hardware company building satellites out of warehouses and offices in San Francisco. What happened during COVID when there was a lockdown? Yeah, so we were closely monitoring the COVID situation. And, you know, as a hardware company, we had to start thinking about how we were just going to continue operating at all, right? And so we were just starting to put some thought into that. And the situation was, as we all know, quickly getting more and more serious around the world. You had these lockdowns happening in Northern Italy and Spain. And there hadn't been anything like that in the United States, but it certainly seemed like it was only a matter of time until something like that might happen. And then what happened was that the city of San Francisco put something into effect uh, far faster than I think anybody was expecting. We had sort of a normal all hands on a Monday morning. And that Monday, while we were in our all hands, so it was about 11 a.m., it leaked that the city of San Francisco had just decided to impose a total lockdown of San Francisco and that the lockdown would be going into effect at midnight that very night. So we had 
about 12 hours to figure out what we were going to do as a company. And you had to assume that people are basically going to be locked in their homes, right? And so there would be no ability to go into the office to access any of the hardware that we had there. You know, nobody really knew what a lockdown would, would really look like. Uh, it, but certainly we'd all seen the movies where the National Guard is troops patrolling the streets and making sure that, that people are in their houses. So, you know, it seemed like it could be uh, very severe. So we're having a sort of normal all hands and, you know, someone is, is giving an update on, on some topic, of course, don't remember what. And this news leaked and I think I saw it on Twitter and then somebody, you know, posted to the company Slack. And we just had to interrupt and say, hey, look, guys, we have a very serious situation here. San Francisco has just moved to be the first place in the United States that's going to impose a total lockdown. It is happening at midnight tonight. And so we need to immediately come up with a plan to get the hardware out of the office and to places where we can continue working on it. We have no idea how long this is going to last. You know, part of this was people had talked about lockdowns, you know, lasting for three weeks or something at the time was what people were talking about. And none of what we had seen with COVID up to that point led me to conclude that this lockdown was only going to last three weeks. It was just like, on, on what basis? If you looked at what was happening in some of these countries and, and, how, and how the governments were reacting, these lockdowns could, could last for months, especially if it was a police or even military-imposed lockdown. If we didn't have a way to access our hardware, I mean, that could spell the end of the company. So we said to the team, we are looking for volunteers to adopt Astronus hardware. And that means you are going to take it home and that is going to be the new place that this hardware lives, whether it's you or whether it's somebody else who's going to work on it. And so everybody that has, you know, a garage or a spare bedroom or even a spare spot in your apartment that you think could work for this, let us know. We're going to call a meeting here in a minute to figure out the, the exact you know, sort of tactical game plan. You know, we assigned a couple of people that to be in charge of it that we knew were badasses at, at this kind of uh, logistical organizing. You know, I'm very proud to say that, I mean, the team immediately sprung into action. People, of course, volunteered up their uh, garages and their spare bedrooms to be these future homes of, of various types of hardware and test equipment. And then, we, you know, we had a fantastic software and IT team that was able to figure out how to help people get set up so that you could, so that others could remote in to that hardware. And part of the issue is that if you don't have access to the building and all of your servers are inside the building and you're just trying to remote in and those servers go down, you can't, you can't restart them or you can't fix the servers, right? So we had to get all the servers out and distribute those so that not just, you know, people could work on the hardware in their houses, but that their teammates could maybe remote in. So it was quite a logistical and software undertaking. And it was very uh, carefully controlled chaos, just people running around, throwing things into boxes, putting them on carts, getting them out, you know, into the back of trucks, but it worked. And then in a few hours, we had all the key hardware out of the office that we knew we needed to keep working on and distribute it out to, to people's houses. And, and, and honestly, I mean, I, I was amazed it, within a day or two, we were, the team was up and running fully remotely in a way that it felt like we, we honestly didn't even miss a beat. Uh, it just, uh, we're able to continue on with our work and lost almost zero time as a result. So this was carefully controlled chaos, moving the entire hardware and server stack out into the city of San Francisco over 12 hours. Yeah, I mean, well, and, and actually most of it was done by the end of the business day. So really in, in about five, six hours, we had all the hardware distributed. Mm. So yeah, the, the team was able to move just with incredible speed to, to get that done. Mm. One story I thought was really inspiring was when you had to go drive to a test facility and fix a satellite that wasn't working. And I heard about this as Strikeforce Omega. <laughs> yes, Strikeforce Omega. Yeah, so we built a full-size prototype and actually a what we call a qualification vehicle for our future satellite design. So this was in 2020. We had assembled this full-scale satellite and we wanted to go and test it to the extreme limits and just sort of see, you know, how far we could push it and make sure that everything would work. 
So we, we rented time at this test facility in Los Angeles. So this is a thermal vacuum chamber uh, test facility where you can go and rent thermal vacuum chambers of about the size uh, that you would need for one of our, our satellites. We have those thermal vacuum chambers now in-house. We've built our own at the Astronauts headquarters. But at the time, we didn't have that. And so we went to this facility. This was scheduled to be about a three-week-long test. So, you know, this is a big deal. You have this full-on satellite in a vacuum chamber pumped down to very close to hard vacuum, and you're testing all of the electronics and all of the software running on the electronics and going through, you know, putting it through its paces, simulating night and day, as well as the transitions between night and day. There's sort of this whole battery of tests that you run. And unfortunately, as these things go, uh, we had a failure in one of the electronics boxes. And there was this immediate question of how do we respond? What do we do? Because it was really important to us that we go and, and get this test finished. But, you know, it, it, when something like that happens, you know, you're just sort of seeing the telemetry off the satellite and it, it's sort of not clear what, what the story is. And by far the most effective way to, to get to the bottom of it is to take the satellite apart if you really think that something has, has broken. And we only had this relatively short window that we could do this testing at this test facility before somebody else needed that test chamber. Do you remember how long it would have been if you had just waited? If you had sort of said, ah, you know, we're going to miss the window. We'll get to another one. Are we talking a month? Are we talking six months? Yeah, it would have been months. I mean, you don't have the entire team down there just in case these things happen. So we didn't have the team members down there to actually get the satellite out of the thermal vacuum chamber, get it buttoned up and into its shipping container and get it back to do some more testing. So a group of team members basically volunteered uh, to say, we will drive down right now. And they started calling themselves Strike Force Omega. So Strike Force Omega immediately got in cars, drove down. They were also sort of a relief crew because uh, uh, a lot of the team members that were down there running this test had been, had been working sort of all hours. They got the satellite, uh, what we call safe, so got it um, into a, a safe position and got the test chamber returned to ambient pressures and temperatures, got the satellite out, got it all packed up. And we actually got it all the way back to the Astronus facility. The team was also analyzing a lot of data while this was happening and very quickly realized that, you know, in retrospect, <laughs> there was this one component that the team had some questions about that was a little iffy when somebody had made the decision to just go ahead and put this on there thinking that it would be fine, but as uh, sort of marginal. And sure enough, that was the one component that failed, right? And so it was like, there was definitely a lesson learned there, which is like, if there's any doubt, then there is no doubt. Like you should just, before flying something in space, you got to be confident that it's going to perform in all of the, you know, in the full environment that you're expecting and, and with margin. But in this case, the team had made a call and we had shipped this sort of more commercial version of this part. And sure enough, that's the, the thing that it failed. And, and, you know, they knew that it was, it was toast. So, like, it was going to have to be actually replaced on the board. But the good news was that it was a relatively simple job to replace that component. And between when we had originally built that board many months earlier and when we pulled the satellite back to the Astronauts headquarters, we had gotten the space version of the, port, of the part in. So it ended up being a relatively simple fix. They were able to take the satellite apart, get this box out, get to the uh, specific you know, piece of electronics and swap out this part and get it all put back together again in, in a matter of a couple days. And that was just like a shockingly fast turnaround for anything of this type, right? In, in our industry, that's, that is not. But the team was you know, totally confident that they had root caused the problem in retrospect it was very obvious that this that this part was was going to be marginal, and sure enough, that was the one thing that we needed to replace. And they were able to to get that replaced, do some analysis that showed that there wasn't any damage to anything else. You know, run through some some quick testing, and actually get the satellite back together again, and then get the satellite back down to LA just a couple of days later, and back into the test chamber to finish out the test before our window ran out. And I can just tell you that is not something that a traditional aerospace company would, would never have done on that kind of turnaround. One thing this brings up is the balance between move fast and break things. 
and hardware is hard. In software, you often want to ship something and see how external customers or perhaps internal customers react to that and then iterate. In hardware, it's often much more tricky. You know, you run into this situation where there's this question and because you go with your gut and make this call, you end up almost losing months of time. How do you balance that in the culture of Astranus today? It is a great question. And there's a time for super fast iteration. And then there is a time to get it right. Mm. And it is about knowing the difference between those two things. You absolutely, with hardware, no different than software, you have to be able to iterate quickly in the early stages of new development and then maintain that as a culture so that you're constantly iterating and constantly improving the technology, right? You have to be able to constantly advance the technology forward and, and not be standing still. And then I think the key is the judgment to know when to focus on getting it right. And getting it right means testing the hell out of that hardware across the most extreme ranges you think you can put it through. It means having lots of reviewers on the final design. It means lots of uh, simulation and modeling. It means putting your designs and your test results after you've done all of that rigorous testing in front of a set of reviewers who are actually a step removed from the company and can be independent, basically independent minded and call you out if you're, if you're sort of fooling, you know, if you're sort of fooling yourself. A step removed from the company in, in the early days was, were those consultants or friends of friends? We have a technical advisory board that is chaired by Dan Golden, the former head of NASA. Mm. Dan Golden has overseen over $200 billion of aerospace programs in his several decades in the industry. And this group of about a dozen experts is able to look at what the team is doing and do that from a, you know, this, like I said, a sort of step removed uh, objective standpoint. You can get caught up in the moment for sure and say, hey, I got to get this thing out the door. And like, ah, I think it's probably going to be fine. They are not subject to that mindset. They've done this type of review for aerospace programs for years and years because that is part of how we do things in space is, is you, you use these uh, review boards or these, these big design reviews or test reviews to make sure that you're not missing anything. And I think it's really important. I, I, there's a reason that we set up uh, our technical advisory board to be able to just be that extra check on what we're doing. And yeah, that's how we make sure that we're getting it right. How often does the outside technical review board get involved? Like you obviously do these internal oh, reviews yeah, yeah. quickly. And then is it, you know, once a month, somebody from that review board will get involved or how, how, what's the timing there? There's a standard set of these milestones that work pretty well. So you have for a new design, you have what's called a preliminary design review, PDR. That's when you first think you've got a design that is going to work and is going to meet all the requirements and is going to do the thing you need to do. Then you have a critical design review, CDR, which is when you're actually much further along in the design, you've already built a lot of early hardware and you've been testing it. And that is when you are basically down to, hey, we are now going to finish building the satellite and there should be no further you know, significant design changes from this point on. Then you do reviews around major tests, both before and then after, like I was talking about with a, you know, a major test of the satellite through a three-week thermal vacuum test. And then you might have further reviews in the run-up to launching the satellite. Pre-ship review, flight readiness review, there's sort of a, a few, different, few different flavors there. There's a couple of these uh, milestones where it makes sense to get you know, a larger group together and again, have your team go and uh, defend their decisions in front of a group who has almost seen, you know, seen almost everything go wrong that there is to go wrong in space. And, you know, it can be sort of a stressful thing, but at the end of the day, we end up learning a lot and it's important. And so you have this outside design review board and you have a preliminary design review. There's a critical design review. There's design reviews around big tests. And then, of course, before launch. Does it, are, are those sort of you know quarterly milestones for like a 
you know, 50 to 80 person uh, satellite projects or are they kind of monthly milestones? What's the kind of cadence there? In our case, I mean, these are months apart and it really, yeah, uh, it, it just depends on the program. How do you hire for speed? How do you find the people who are going to make these decisions to save time, save costs, iterate faster and excel in an environment like this? So hiring is an incredible challenge at a, at a company like ours. The things that we like to see in, especially engineers that come in to, to interview at Astronus is number one, that they have done hard things and actually built real hardware. And then on top of that, they really need to demonstrate a strong handle on the fundamentals, on the core math that makes up their discipline. Without that combination of things, they are probably going to have a hard time at a company like Astronus. And so we really filter for that pretty strongly. And I'll tell you why, because a lot of school projects, which is like, you know, you take some class and the class involves building a thing, but it's really out of a, you know, there's like a formula to it. And it's just sort of to teach you the basic ropes of, of how to, how to build something, how to build a circuit board that can, that can control a, a light bulb or something. The issue is if you aren't having to do something hard and, and push all the way to the limits of where there's real challenge, then you don't get into tough trade-offs. That is what actually matters because in, in airspace, especially, it's all about the trade-offs. You know, there's, the satellite only has so much power. So you can improve the performance of a subsystem by saying, oh, we're going to, you know, add these things. But like it also, that will take up more power and it'll also add more mass. And if you try to crank that dial all the way to the max, you quickly find out that you are taking up so much power that the rest of the components of the satellite aren't getting the power that they need. Like it, it really is all trade-offs all the time. You know, it's very complex because every subsystem of the satellite impacts all the other subsystems. So really what we're looking for with people who have built things that were hard is that they had to make tough trade-offs. You know, just just that part of this bicycle that they were building was, was uh, breaking. They just made the metal thicker. Okay, mm. well, you know, <laughs> on, on a satellite, you can't just make the metal thicker every time you have a problem. Uh, with your structures or else the satellite will be too heavy to get off the ground. So there is a very real difference between doing a school project where you never really actually, you know, it's not hard enough where you ever have to make any trade-offs and a project that was so hard, you really had a tough decision to make. One thing you mentioned earlier that I really love is this idea of judgment around you have to have the judgment to know when to move fast and when to move slow. And one heuristic you mentioned was looking at early stage versus later stage development. You know, if you're early prototyping stage where you're looking at sketches or early architecture diagrams, you can move much faster and iterate quicker. How do you interview for that skill, that, that judgment? I think I would take it back to, to people who have done hard things before, because if they've really built real hardware in a, in a really challenging environment where it was super, super challenging, then a move fast and break things approach will not have resulted in success. They will at some point have had to take a step back and say, okay, I think I have the right design here. I think we, I think we have the right approach. Now let's test the hell out of it. You know, let's, let's run all the right checks and make sure that this thing is going to really work when it gets out in the field or when it gets into the hands of a consumer or when it gets deployed at a certain level. You know, with people fresh out of school, you can't have an expectation that they will have seen something through from start to finish, from, you know, clean sheet of paper to built and in the hands of users or in some rugged environment and seeing that all the way through from start to finish. That's not a realistic expectation for most people coming straight out of school. You definitely want them to build hard, you know, hard things, but very difficult to, to see someone come in with that uh, cycle from start to finish. But as you move up to more senior people who have spent, you know, years of experience, you know, then they should have seen things all the way through from start to finish. And part of the challenge of our industry, frankly, is that unfortunately, there's still a lack of people who have actually seen a full aerospace product go from clean sheet design 
to being deployed. There's a lot more of those people now because of all the new companies that are building so many things and building them quickly and getting things launched and flown in space. But there's so many projects where that was actually never the case. I mean, they they started with a clean sheet design. They started to help develop something. Program gets, you know, a few hundred million or a billion over budget, and then it's canceled. And so they never actually get to see it deployed and see that through to the very end. It's a real problem. You know, we as a as a country actually will, you know, we we have done ourselves a disservice by not having more things that we saw through to 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 fruition, you know, and sat and just sort of had all of these space projects get canceled. This was the problem with uh, the space shuttle. The space shuttle just sort of was this vehicle that would never die. It, it just had this momentum to continue on for decades. And there were so many shuttle replacement programs that sprang up, had billions of dollars attached to them. Industry was put on contracts to go and start building things. And then they were canceled. And so you had for uh, you know a couple of decades, you had a huge number of people that never got to see what they were working on actually come through to fruition. And I think we took a, a big step back because of it. One thing you do at Astranus is sell to governments, which is notoriously slow, full of many different stakeholders and long approval processes and RFPs. How do you manage this? One of the things that we bring to the table is that we're willing to you know, spend our own money to start working on a project that we really believe in. The U.S. military needs uh, broadband comms uh, like everybody else. So we've had a great working relationship with the Space Force on where our satellites could be helpful. And we've moved forward on projects that we believe in where we, we, we know that you know, there's something where we can make a difference there using our own money. And that's just not something that they normally see. With the traditional defense contractors, those guys are sitting back waiting for somebody to write them a check, pay for everything, and say, we need you to do this thing, so we're going to pay for all of it. You will take no risk. We're going to cover all your costs. Here's the first check. And only after that money starts flowing do they really start moving ahead seriously with something. And so being able to come forward and say, hey, we think we have something useful here. So we've started working on it. You know, if we're on the right track, let us know. But we're going to build this thing. We're going to do a demo. We're going to start making real progress here. And because we believe in it. And that's just, that's just something they're not used to seeing. Mm-hmm. So, and that, and that can actually have a great acceleration effect, right? Where they, they sort of see an opportunity to get a very fast turnaround on a, on a solution to a problem that they have. They can uh, accelerate pretty quickly, jump in and, and, and get involved. I guess there, there sounds like a risk there too. Like if you're spending your own money before the contract gets approved, there's some chance the contract doesn't get approved. Oh, yes. Oh, 100%. Yes. We have a word for it in the industry. It's called proceeding at risk. <laughs> and the traditional defense contractors do not proceed at risk. And what I'm talking about is proceeding at risk that, that we are saying, this might not ever actually turn into a real contract, but we believe in it. We think that we're building a valuable thing here that you will find useful. And so we're going to take that risk. A lot of what we're working on is dual use technology. So there will be some applications to our commercial business as well. You know, there's, there's a, a good overlap there. So, you know, we feel pretty good about finding, you know, find, you know, if we're pushing ahead on some new waveform for our software-defined radio, we might feel good about using that commercially at some point. The other thing is you can absolutely see the, the demand signal there. I mean, it, a lot of uh, folks that come out of the Department of Defense, they will pick the companies that they work at based on what they saw as the need. And when you have people coming out and, and you know, looking for private sector jobs and they get really excited about what you're doing and say, oh my gosh, we need this so badly. Okay, I can help go get this into the hands of the program office that I used to work with. Then, then you've got a pretty good feeling that you're on the right track. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what we've seen. What's one habit you have around moving fast? So there's a, a question I like to ask in engineering meetings sometimes, which is, you know, if, if you had to make this decision today, what would your decision be? Especially if, if uh, an engineer is asking for, you know, six weeks to go off and study something or do this full analysis. And then, you know, you can have a conversation of like, do you really think that the decision is going to change in six weeks of studying it? 
Or does it make sense to just go build a prototype with this design that you've got in your head right now? And the answer is always like, go, let's just go take a stab at building something. That's, I think, a pretty helpful exercise because often people, they have a good sense of what an answer that is, if not the right answer, it's, it's good enough to make real forward progress. And the things that they could go and look at with another six weeks of studying it, I mean, yeah, they can also do that. I mean, they can, they can do that while they're moving forward on, on, a, on a first prototype. But very often they did know the right answer and they were being cautious at jumping to something and then you know, being found to be wrong later, right? I mean, nobody, nobody wants to be seen as hasty and then, and then be seen by their peers as having made the, the wrong decision later. So you just have to have a culture where people can jump ahead and just make progress and then you can always keep iterating on it later. Kind of brings us back to that, that judgment around moving fast versus going slow. The, the sort of default there sounds like is if the engineer feels like it's a high probability of working or at least being the right decision, taking the extra six weeks to check is probably not the right call. But if you're near the later stages of a project, that might be reversed, right? If you're, if you're sort of about to launch or about to do a big test. Yeah, again, I mean, we're, we're talking about a new design and just getting a first prototype together. Just getting some piece of hardware working, even if it's like a very rough prototype or it's a, a, a sort of a subscale or a piece of, of what will be a larger thing l- later, we have found it is just always better to go and get something built quickly. And these are hard problems. So you can, you can end up in analysis paralysis for basically forever if you, if you don't charge ahead and just get something built, something working on a, on a benchtop. It's very easy to get to get stuck because there, there's no perfect solution. I mean, again, with these, you know, with these hard problems, there's real trade-offs and, and there's no, there's no easy answer uh, or else everybody would do it. I love that. It sounds like really leaning on that early stage versus later stage analysis and saying, is this a space where there's many, many degrees of freedom and we just need to get a benchtop model built or is it something where we're about to face a very stringent test that <laughs> if, if it goes wrong, we might lose three months. What's one thing someone else told you about speed that you share with other founders? So let's say like early stage founder comes to you and they're like, hey, you know, I'm thinking about this problem. And you're like, oh, you know, one great piece of advice I heard is X. Honestly, I'd have to bring it back to just just go build something, Mm -hmm. you know, especially for very early stage founders, figuring out something that no matter what the size of the team is, that they can just go build and test out a key piece of the thesis. And it doesn't have to be a total test. It doesn't have to prove that, you know, your entire plan is all going to work. It's just get something built just pays such huge dividends. You end up learning more than you would think always. And it's also the exact thing that investors are most impressed by. There's nothing that investors are more impressed by than walking in to a super early stage company and seeing a bunch of hardware sitting on a bench top. It doesn't have to be perfect. It could be super messy, wires running everywhere. Uh, this is Silicon Valley. These investors, they know the score. I mean, they, they know that that's what early looks like. So if you can just get something up and running, it will pay huge dividends. The other thing about getting something working is that often it makes you go and sort through all of the non-fun parts of getting a company off the ground. And you end up learning far more with that that actually can often feed back into the into the technology or into the products that you're building, right? So in space, the example is actually flying a satellite versus just building something on a bench top. And, and that's what we did with our very early demo satellite means you have to go and you have to buy a launch. So then you very quickly find out what the requirements are of the launch provider of any integration there uh, of, of what, you know, you need in order to qualify to be on their rocket. They don't just let anything on there. They don't want things on there that are going to blow up and take out the whole rocket, you know, and millions, if not, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of, of valuable hardware, take all that out. So they have very stringent requirements on certain things. And so there's a lot of useful lessons that go in, in just taking those steps to go and do that. So, you know, for us, it was like procuring a launch, going and getting FCC license, to operate the satellite, again, all kinds of, of messy details. And those things matter, right? And those things can actually have a very significant impact on the technology and on basically your product roadmap and what makes the most sense. 
And so going in and doing that early. Yeah. So it's, it's basically the hardware version of like in software, if you're waiting until you're satisfied with the product to ship it, it's too late. Right. I mean, we were in discussions to buy our first launch for our demo satellite while we're in, in YC. So in the first like month or two of the company's existence, we were having those conversations. Same thing with the FCC, diving into what it would take to get an FCC license to operate a satellite. You know, that was something we did in the earliest days. And you might think, oh, what's the point of doing that? If you don't have, you, don't, you haven't built anything, you don't even have the money to fly the satellite yet. But taking those extra steps, can, you can learn a huge amount in a very short period of time. And that can pay off very real dividends. And then another uh, case in the space business is figuring out what your ground infrastructure is going to look like, which ends up tripping a lot of people up and, and can be almost as much work getting this, you know, this, the ground stations, basically the satellite dishes you're going to have on the ground. They're going to talk to the satellite, all of the, the, the network of how you're going to talk to that ground station because it's going to be out in some remote location, you know, getting all that figured out. Exact same thing by going and just moving forward with a plan to actually launch the satellite instead of just sort of building a prototype that's going to sit on a bench top forces you to think through those things. And those are exactly the kind of things that, you know, you can learn a huge amount in a short period of time when you're trying to get something new off the ground. I love that. It sounds like part of it is just build something. And another key part of what you're saying is get a end-to-end test of the system and services and pieces that you're going to eventually commercialize. So in your case, it's you know, you need your satellite, but you need your launch, you need the requirements for the launch and just understanding that end to end and doing the things that aren't fun. Yeah, absolutely. It's like the learn by doing. What are, what are all the pieces that, you know, are not super obvious from the outside that when you start digging in for that end to end test, like appear. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much, John. Really appreciate having you on the show tonight. Oh, thanks. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Astronauts most recently raised $250 million at a $1.4 billion valuation. They've purchased a dedicated launch for next year on a SpaceX Falcon 9 and have contracts with the state of Alaska and the country of Peru to provide millions of people with internet. They're hiring for a variety of roles. If you're interested in helping bring connectivity to billions of people, reach out at astronauts.com careers. A special thanks to my team at 50 Years and all the founders working on the world's most important problems. I'm Peregrine Badger, and you've been listening to Speed. Speed.